Hello and welcome to an all-new episode of Close Talking. I am one of your co-hosts, Connor McNamara Stratton. And I am your other co-host, Jack Rossiter Munley. <laughs> that was good. Um, and it is a wonderful, terrifying February day. There's a lot going on. But this is a moment to not think about it, because on Close Talking, all that happens is we read a poem, we talk about the poem, and we read it again. And we got yet another wonderful poem for you today um, by the excellent poet Fadi Judah. The poem is Additional Notes on Tea, uh, and Judah is a marvelous poet. Um, he won the Yale Younger Prize in 2007, um, and so his debut book came out in 2008, and he has a few other collections of poetry, um, most recently Footnotes in the Order of Disappearance, uh, which came out in 2018, I believe. Um, and he's a very interesting guy as well. Um, he's Palestinian-American. I think he was born in Texas, but he was raised in uh, Libya and Saudi Arabia. Um, and he also has the distinction of being a literal doctor and did Doctors Without Borders um, in uh, Zambia and Sudan. Um the first of which comes up in this poem. But I'm just like, it's hard enough being a doctor, it's hard enough being a poet, but it's like, usually the doctors are like, all right, we'll leave the poetry to you, and the poetry's like, I'm not touching anything that might be dangerous except for my pen. But this guy, he's doing it both, and I've never been, uh, you know, on the operating table with Judah, but his poetry, I can tell you, is very good. If if the doctoring is anything like the poetry, it's exceptional. Yes. Yes. Um, well, without further ado, um, this is Additional Notes on Tea by Fadi Judah. In Cairo, a boy's balcony higher than a man's deathbed. The boy is sipping tea. The view is angular like a fracture. Surrounding the bed, women in wooden chairs. They signal mourning with a scream. Family men on the street run up the stairs and drink raven tea. On the operating table in Sulwazy, a doctor watches a woman die. Tea while the anesthetic wears off, while the blade is waiting, tea. The doctor says the woman knows God is sleeping outside heaven in a tent. God is a refugee dreaming of tea. Once upon a time, an ocean married a sea to carry tea around. Land was jealous, so it turned into desert and gave no one wood for ships. And when ships became steel, 
land turned into ice, and when everything melted, everything tasted like tea. Once upon a time, there was a tea party in Boston. Tea, like history, is a non sequitur. I prefer it black. The Chinese drink it green. The doctor is in. (laughs) Yes, indeedly do. Yeah, I guess usually at the beginning we do a little play-by-play, which will probably be especially helpful for this poem because there's a bit of jumping around. Um, The way I understand this poem is there's, so there's like, uh, I think there's seven stanzas. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Seven three-line stanzas. Yeah. So there's seven three-line stanzas, and basically the first six, there's like one little story or vignette that happens per every two stanzas. Um, so in the first like two stanzas, there's this basically uh, a man has died on the deathbed. Um, like there's a in Cairo. Um, there's a boy who's drinking tea and then there's women who are kind of mourning the loss of this man, uh, on the deathbed. Then we move to Solwezi, which is a city in, uh, Zambia, um, where there's a doctor who sort of has unsuccessfully tried to save a woman on the operating table, um, and then there's kind of this bit about like after like watching the woman die there's this you know the doctor says the woman knows god is sleeping and it kind of gets a little abstract there um and that's kind of like story number two and then story number three which are like the fifth and sixth stanzas gets into like parable territory we've got the once upon a times coming in and there's like ocean is a character, land is a character, and land is jealous of ocean because ocean's getting with sea, and then T's all around there doing stuff. Um, and then basically then the last stanza is just like, uh, as it's all self-described, <laughs> a non, uh, non sequitur, uh, and just kind of like doing its own thing. Um, so that's kind of like what's happening on a sort of basic level of the poem, I think. Yeah, I agree. Uh, it's not a real, it's definitely not a linear progression of any sort, but there is a, a definite logic that can be pulled out in terms of organization. It's not totally like a, a more random impressionistic view of T or something like there's a, there's some structure underlining everything. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. Um, Yeah, and of course, I mean, it almost goes without saying, but with the title, additional notes on T, um, which kind of helps, I think, the poem get away with it sort of jumping around because it's like, here's some more thoughts about T. Here's one, here's another. Um, T is in every stanza, um, and it's kind of like, you know, the first basic link sort of between everything in uh 
you know, the poem. So like even when you're jumping from Cairo to Sulwazy, like T is still there as a kind of like grounding tool. Um, and of course, you know, like as you were saying, it's not totally like disjointed, you know, in the in the first two stanzas, like there's a death of some kind. Um, and in the third and fourth stanza, there is another death. Um, it's of a different it's a different death and it's it's less about the sort of family like community or surrounding the death and more just like the operating table um and then like the fifth and sixth are kind of they are kind of doing its own thing but it's also like a sort of origin story of tea in a kind of way and there is a uh, sense of not necessarily explicit death, but you do get this. So it turned uh, land was jealous, so it turned into desert and gave no one wood for ships. That feels a little bit like death for the land, going from a forest to a desert. That's a pretty big change from you know verdant abundance to desolation. And then when the ships became steel, land turned to ice. Famously, the Arctic is also technically a desert because it actually gets so little precipitation that even though it's covered in ice and frozen water, because so little precipitation falls, it counts as a desert. So it feels to me like there's echoes of death in those lines or of dying or of a certain kind of desolation or maybe, to be most precise, an absence of life as opposed to death itself. I think that's a really good point. There's also this sense of uh, and there's there's a lot more to it, but just as another link, maybe you know the the sort of the doctor story ends with this great line: "God is a refugee dreaming of tea," um, and we have this kind of sense of like, and then God's like outside of heaven, sleeping in a tent. Um, we have this sense of like displacement, and then that gets us thinking about land, um, which I feel like then kind of moves into when the the parable stories like about ocean and land I don't know it's not like a direct link but you know the idea of land and geography is such an important part about of like refugee like uh, both life but also like the very idea of what it means to be a refugee in terms of like being displaced from one's land and stuff. I don't know. I, it's, that's maybe more of a tenuous link, but, um, well, I think there's a lot of that going on there because the definition of being a refugee is in many ways, it's not built on nationhood, but the reason that refugee status exists and the reason that the status of refugees becomes so complicated is because you're fleeing a discrete bordered country and trying to enter other discrete bordered countries. And so when you take the theoretically omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God and turn that entity into a refugee, you're saying that this borderless figure that, you know, theoretically has dominion over the world has refugee status. And so you're rubbing up 
against those two ideas, which I think is, a, aside from just being sort of a captivating image and a captivating line, when you drill down into a little bit of what's actually going on there, like you're starting to get some very interesting contradictions. Yeah. No, it's really right. Yeah, and just like thinking of heaven being the homeland for God in the kind of way that, that God is sort of been forced to leave um, is is just really interesting but then also interesting in the context that it it follows the woman who's just passed away and then that's like what gets you thinking about heaven in the first place and this like kind of I don't even know but it's like the, you know, if you pass away and then you go to heaven, but then like God's not in heaven, God's outside heaven. So you're like, I don't know, the God is one time displaced, but then I can imagine the woman is being two times displaced. Um, if they're not even, we're not already <laughs> a refugee, which they may have been, um, in which case it'd be three times displaced. So that's sort of just a bit of a, a mind warp. Totally. Um, <laughs> I, I really kind of got hooked on those lines. I'm glad that you brought them up as one of the places to start because it was something that definitely captivated me going through this poem because it's, it's something that happens sometimes in art and it made me flash on several examples actually all from the same person. Um, but it's something that I find really interesting when you sort of take god and like personify or put limitations or real humanity onto god is something i find really fascinating um and tom waits actually does this kind of a lot in his songs which mm. i find very interesting i think part of why i was in mind of him is because uh the first part where uh the doctor says the woman knows god is sleeping outside heaven in a tent tom waits has this song called make it rain where it's all about like I'm close to heaven, crushed at the gate. Uh, like he's like right outside heaven the whole time. It's a whole. I'm close to heaven, crushed at the gate. Sharpen their knives. It's not about God being outside heaven, but just like the notion of being directly outside is there. And then he also has another song called "God's Away on Business," and the one that I mostly thought of is a song that he wrote. It's like this epic length song that was released on his triple album uh orphans ballers brawlers and bastards and it is this like epic length song called road to peace which was what george w bush was referring to his plan for the middle east as it was like the roadmap to peace and so it's this sort of recitation of real events about suicide bombings and stuff but the refrain that comes in at one point is maybe God himself is lost and needs help along the road to peace. Maybe God himself needs all of our help. Maybe God himself is lost and needs help. He's out upon the road to peace. Which is another similar, I feel like, deploying idea of, you know, part of what's being contested in the violence that happens between Israel and Palestine, which is what the song is about, um, is this contested notion of God and specific human ideas of what the divine entity of God might be. But it also put me in mind of 
like a refugee god, either refugee from heaven or uh, in some other capacity. But just realizing that there's there's an artist out there who does this kind of thing a lot was sort of interesting to be thinking about. And it is legitimately something that's always just like really fascinated me as a move in poems and in songs to, to really bring that kind of idea or to, to use what I think is a pretty generally accepted idea of a, of an omniscient God and to really play with it that way. Yeah. Oh, I really like that a lot. Um, yeah, no, it's, that's really interesting. And it's also, it's like, I feel like the line, God is a refugee dreaming of tea in a many poems, it would be like, that's like the point of the poem almost. But like, there's so much happening in the poem that it's kind of this moment that happens and then it goes. Um, and also the fact that God is dreaming of tea, like, it's very interesting. And it kind of puts, because I, because the question I have, you know, not that there's going to be, I think this is a poem that's, you know, it doesn't, because of its sort of associativeness and jumping aroundness and non sequitur vibes, it's not going to have like a coherent, like message per se, but it is the case that T is like the, you know, the obvious central thing that's playing different roles here and there that may not like add up to like t equals this <laughs> but the fact that t is sort of comforting for this refugee god and is kind of like um i mean almost heaven in a way or like it's the the thing that God is like wants, but doesn't have being, being in the tent outside of heaven, um, I think is really interesting. Um, and that's kind of like what, what sort of I was thinking about a lot is like in all of these scenes we have tea. Um, and in some ways it's such a, it's a thing that I love in poems that poems can do. Cause it's something I think about like in my own life, just like how there's certain things that are just like there always in like every kind of situation. Um, like, I don't know. It's like there's, <laughs> I don't know, like every place, uh, I don't know, wherever, you know, anybody is like, people are wearing pants or like every building has a toilet in it and like even a funeral building or like you know a chapel or uh like a museum or a subway station or whatever um and you know these like objects are kind of just like indifferent and everywhere to like the things that were like going through but like a lot of times poems and I think us is we put a lot of meaning like onto objects and we like give them, we sort of load them up with meaning. 
Um, like as an example, we you know we recently talked about the Sharon Olds poem um, "Armor," where uh, she's with her son in like this museum, uh, and they're looking at armor, and like she's like kind of horrified that her son is like obsessed with all this violent you know stuff and it basically in that poem the armor sort of acquires like the symbolic complications of masculinity and stuff um and it it provides like this opportunity for like the speaker but also sharon olds to like you know uh become like you know, reflected on that or whatever. Um, and this is kind of a, a bit of a ramble, but I feel like that's a very common thing that poems do really well. Um, but that, of course, also like lots of um, objects are incredibly important, you know, just in, in many kinds of art and stuff. Um, but you can also think of like, kids and adults who have like stuffed animals or or totems of some kind that like um you know if someone passes away like you know you have a like you know a piece of clothing from them or like a letter that they wrote and it these things can sort of like stand in for other things i've made the point <laughs> um but what's different about this poem, I think, is like it kind of takes that sort of conceit, but it like kind of pushes it to a place where you can't keep using tea in the same way, I guess, if that makes sense. So like if it was only the poem, if the poem was only like the one about God as a refugee dreaming of tea, then I could be like tea is like this tea is home or tea is this comforting thing or whatever. Um, or if like, you know, um, like it's just the scene where the doctor is drinking tea while like the anesthetic is wearing off, which is like very intense, um, of, of, you know, having just watched a woman die. Um, tea is like, almost either it's like the only comfort against this kind of incredibly dark moment or it's this sort of eerie like what is T doing here in this picture uh T has no place in this kind of like really sad state um and you know and then like in the end, you know, we have this, like, once upon a time there was a tea party in Boston. If it was just that, then it's like, okay, tea, tea is bourgeois revolution democracy or whatever. <laughs> or something, you know. Um, but because they're all there, um, and because, like, especially because we end with, like, tea, like history, is a non sequitur. I prefer it black, the Chinese drink it green, which is like the most banal ending, like deliberately like, I like this tea, other people like that tea, Dif people have different preferences. It's not like 
the big ooh and ah, you know, ending that you might expect. Um, but I think it like it challenges. I guess I don't know to what end right now, but it the T and all of these sort of paradoxical and contradictory and like emotionally fraught in different ways situations sort of like challenges our ability to like assign a kind of a specific set kind of meaning to the T, uh, even though we're still trying to do it all the time because we know it's like the thing of the poem, if that makes sense. That does make sense. And that's very interesting because I sort of did ascribe something to the T um, and I totally agree with how you've broken it down and that the T does not correspond to any concrete thing and that the poem is very conscientious about kind of every time you think you have a handle on, oh, T is comfort or T is home or T is solace or whatever, it sort of switches gears on you. But I kept thinking back to, and partially this is because of how the poem does wrap up, where it gets into this once upon a time section, those sort of those last three stanzas, even though you're right that the final stanza is offset from the previous two a little bit thematically, because it gives a, a new once upon a time. Um, but starting to talk about T as history and T's history of being carried around the world, it sort of reflects back into the beginning of the poem where you start in Cairo and then you move to Zambia, which is where Solwezi is. Um, and those are both in Africa, but they're pretty far apart from each other. And then you sort of switch into this idea of being a refugee, which is, uh, you know, travel based to put it mildly, but like that's displacement and movement throughout the world, which is your segue into the section that's about, you know, once upon a time, an ocean married a sea to carry tea around, which sounds great. It's a great sounding line. Uh, <laughs> like the rhythm of it, it just flows so nicely. But like that then puts me in mind of the role that tea played as one of the first major globally traded commodities. Uh, along with like spices and silks and salt, which I guess is technically lumped in with spices usually probably. I don't know, but dyes. Like it was one of the sort of elemental pieces that got picked up, passed around, and especially during the age of, you know, the quote unquote age of exploration or age of colonialism, it was one of the major colonial products and built what were at those time like the big monopolistic trading companies were partially built on their sort of getting tea and passing it all around and so for me a little bit the ubiquity of the way that tea moves through this poem and some of its geographical movement in the beginning part which isn't extreme but then particularly this later part where it's a little more conceptual about how it's talking about movement put me in mind of those kind of nascent elements of globalization that we now see in you know, the global coffee house chains, which also serve tea, but the fact that tea is an important part of cultures literally all over the world. And it serves different purposes, it's treated differently, but from tea ceremonies in Japan, to having tea with your friends, to high tea in England, to, you know, cultural practices around tea drinking in the Middle East, like, it is 
something that the human race has kind of adopted as part of the way that it exists all around the world. And I think some of the diversity in the poem of the ways people are thinking and talking about tea in the beginning part and then the way it's historically contextualized towards the end had me not literally ascribing anything to tea itself, but I was finding myself thinking more and more about the way that this kind of way of looking at tea is like, here's kind of some scattered thoughts and notions is that like, yeah, tea shows up in a bunch of different emotional situations. It shows up in a bunch of different geographical locations. It is this marker of a globalized, globally connected world. Yeah. And I, I also was, was starting to think of, I'm glad you brought that up. Cause I was like, yeah, it was making me think of colonialism as well. Um, I mean, partly when you get to refugee, you start thinking about like those kinds of global power dynamics and histories. Um, and and but yeah, you're it's you're absolutely right about the T's and also yeah, like T's role in like. You know, motivating colonialism almost, I guess, uh, as the one of the main products or whatever um, that they wanted. Um, and yeah, and it's it's interesting too in that way where, like, thinking about history and then you kind of like get at the end this once upon a time there was a tea party in Boston and um, this might be this is I think reading way to something into it but then it started making me think about like history like is full of beginnings I suppose um, like when you think about the the kind of that like 1619 project that the New York Times recently did that was about you know like the first um, Africans who were taken to uh, the not the Americas but where the US is um, and how you know that that project which is obviously think doing a uh, doing a lot of really important stuff but is 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 trying to say okay we we as US citizens or whatever have marked our beginning at 1776 but really we should be marking this beginning at 1619 because that's when um, you know like African people and slavery sort of began here um, in a real way and that that's actually the foundation of what this nation is um, and then of course there I think there has been some pushback against that even that idea from like uh, you know native people and like indigenous people here who are like okay 1619 is not really the beginning because we've been here for like literally forever um, and anyway, which is all just to say it's, it's interesting because then to end on this, like there was a tea party in Boston 
the Boston Tea Party being one of the like symbolic events that was the beginning of this revolutionary thing. Um, and that coming after both the whole poem, but then also this sort of like parable origin story, it kind of like is a foil to, it kind of undermines the myth of the Boston Tea Party in some kind of way. Uh, where like tea has already had this incredibly complicated history, um, you know, through colonization and all these kinds of things. Um, Let's also and, not forget that a big part of the Boston Tea Party story is a bunch of people dressing up in red face to go and, like commit a crime. Yes. Which that, is another whole element of it that I feel like is taught in school but is not in any way usually interrogated hopefully it is now but it's just sort of like a bunch of settlers dressed up as indians and went and dumped tea in the harbor it's like wait back up stop yeah what yeah <laughs> yes oh my god horrifying um wow um anyway which makes me think of like then that line that comes after Tea like history is a non sequitur, like the idea of the non sequitur being just like there not being, rather than the idea of history being a string of causally related events that have sort of, and then also like that have an origin that are leading to some kind of end, like it's always, you know, like, well, all of these factors led up to the revolution or all of these factors like led up to World War Two or something and it had to happen. It's often I feel like how the narratives are constructed. Um, that the non sequitur is is like just like, well this happened and then that happened and it's pretty different. But like that's how it goes. <laughs> um, which which both is like kind of uh, which the poem kind of enacts beautifully by sort of like putting all of these kind of non sequitur events together. Um, but then is also kind of like challenging like how... I don't know, because it's just very complicated. But then it's like, when, when you think about refugees, as you were saying, that the important, like, the way a refugee can become a refugee is when there are these artificially constructed borders of a nation. And to get a nation, then you have, then, like, the history of a nation is, like, so, I don't know. It feels, like, very important for it to, like, work, I guess. And like, there's also, be, like, an actual international process you have to go through to become officially designated as a refugee that's like a multi-step process this was one of the whole things when trump was being shitty about letting refugees into the country which he continues to be is that it's this vague idea that there's some danger to doing it but in fact to become a refugee you have to go through this multi-step process to actually achieve the status that would then make you eligible to be taken in by countries that are accepting refugees. So mm. there's this 
I think on one level, there's the colloquial way that the term refugee is used, but also it is a literal, like, it's a whole other layer of international bureaucracy that goes on. Yeah, right. No, yeah, I mean, the process, yeah, I was, um, yeah, reading about, like, Ilhan Omar's background, and it's just, like, the process of, of the the years that people spend waiting in the camps is like partly just because of the insane rigorous elaborate process that it takes to process quote unquote um a refugee and admit them somewhere or whatever which Um, is also built around this you know notion that to then cross another country's borders you have to meet some particular threshold so it's not just that you've been driven out of your own and put into this weird stateless existence but then you have to pass all of these different requirements and be passed through this system just to get into another country which again is more like border crossing and border significance yeah it just and interesting too that the last part of the parable like, and when everything melted, everything tasted like tea, which is kind of like the exact opposite of, like, there's no borders, there's no distinctions, there's no, like, everything is, everything is tea, kind of like, it's all melted and as one. Um, and I feel like that also contrasts with just different, you know, like, the beginning, it's so interesting, like, this first stanza in Cairo, a boy's balcony higher than a man's deathbed. The boy is sipping tea. The view is angular like a fracture. Like, the first line is is weird because there's no, like, verb, which is, like, I thought I had, like, misread it at first. Me um, too. But there's, like, that. It's this strange, like, putting these two people in position in relation to one another and like kind of like like dis separating them i guess and then this like the view is angular like a fracture like fracture gets at some kind of you know you can think about breaking bones but like angular like a fracture seems like an opposition to the idea of the when everything melted everything tasted like tea in a in I guess a kind of way where like you have all these sharp angles and these breaks and these divisions um in this first stanza a lesser poet would maybe like make the leap to borders like there in that stanza because I don't because that's kind of where I'm jumping, but I don't think it's, like, that overdone, I guess, or that, like, explicit. But that first stanza sets you up for... Um, and then, I don't know, there's, like, they, the, the second stanza, surrounding the bed, women in wooden chairs, they signal mourning with a scream. That sentence is, like, so haunting and also very strange in that one could write they scream like and we would get that they're in mourning because we know that it's a deathbed Um, and it's like a very distanced sentence like they signal mourning with a scream 
Um, the scream, which often would be like the most visceral and the first thing, is like the last thing mentioned. Um, and that what's being done is signaling something, um, which I don't, I don't know quite what to make of that, but um, I don't know. Anyway, it just was, it just was like making me think about the, the, the movement of the beginning and like where it ends up is, is, is both different in terms of like what's happening, but also like the way things are described and like the, the kinds of words that are used. It is really interesting because it's noticeably different than kind of the whole rest of the poem. Yeah. Pretty much those first two stanzas, there's just a lot, it's just harsher language, I think. Um, yeah. Both the angular, like a fracture and like screaming mourners is so much more, uh, like viscerally dramatic than anything else that's described. I mean, you have this really intense scene in the next stanzas of, you know, watching a woman die in the anesthetic and God, which is really heavy stuff, but it's not described in the same kind of, I don't know. The closest it comes, I think, is when, um, while the blade is waiting to you, just because it's a blade, I feel like that's the most intense other image. But even then, it's not the same kind of human action as they signal mourning with a scream. Family men on the street run up the stairs and drink raven tea. Like the the kinds of human movement that are going on in that first, in well, really in the second stanza, but what's being described in those first two stanzas is, you're so right, it's just on another order of like disjunction and excitement and intensity than, than what's going on in the rest of the poem, just in terms of how the language is bringing you the scene, um, even if the other scenes are still intense, you know? No, and you are, you are right. Um, it is so much more active and harsh in that beginning. Um, and just like the verbs in the third stanza just kind of make the point again, you know, like a doctor watches a woman die, the anesthetic wears off, the blade is waiting. So even though we have this like scene, the way that the scene is verbed, um, it's all pretty like passive, like watching, wearing off and waiting. Um, whereas, you know, as you noted, like the men are running up the stairs and they're signaling morning with the scream. Um, yeah, no, it, it's really interesting. Any other thoughts? Should we read it again? I think we should read it again. All right. This is Additional Notes on Tea by Fadi Judah. In Cairo, a boy's balcony higher than a man's deathbed. The boy is sipping tea. The view is angular like a fracture. Surrounding the bed, women in wooden chairs. They signal mourning with a scream. Family men on the street run up the stairs and drink raven tea. On the operating table in Sowezi, a doctor watches a woman die. Tea, while the anesthetic wears off, 
while the blade is waiting tea. The doctor says the woman knows God is sleeping outside heaven in a tent. God is a refugee dreaming of tea. Once upon a time, an ocean married a sea to carry tea around. Land was jealous, so it turned into a desert and gave no one wood for ships. And when ships became steel, land turned into ice. And when everything melted, everything tasted like tea. Once upon a time, there was a tea party in Boston. Tea, like history, is a non sequitur. I prefer black. The Chinese drink it green. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. This is co-host Jack Rossner Munley. Just reminding you that there are a ton of ways that you can get in touch with us, and we love to hear from you. It's always great to know if you have a different reading of this poem or any of the other poems we've covered, or if there are any poems you wish we would cover in the future. You can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com, or the show and Connor and myself are all on Twitter. That's another great way to connect. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn. Connor is at Connor M. Stratton, and the show is at Close Talking. You can also find us on Instagram at Close Talking Poetry or on Facebook at facebook.com slash close talking. See you next time.